And with a little uh, a little mini series we're doing here in November, we're doing a couple mini series here in November, and uh, we're going to continue our series this morning on on worship. I was telling you guys last week, so many of you guys are just so new. I feel like I just need to re go redo and re uh, recover just some of our vineyard DNA. If you've been here even for a second, you've probably noticed we have like these little banners hanging over on the right hand side of the auditorium, and those are really just our key values and those are really representative of our DNA and uh, we're just in this transition of a lot of new people, a lot of people who have been here for a while, graduated university, got moved on by Amazon, uh, the Lord just picked them up and took them some other place and so we've been sort of transitioning but because of that there's all these new faces and, and a lot of times I get up here on Sunday morning and I'm not even entirely sure who I'm talking to which is, which is good, it's cool, you know, but I feel like we just need to recover some of our vineyard DNA and uh, Last Sunday, we talked a little bit about worship, and we really talked about how worship was really connected to gratitude. You really can't get away from thankfulness and gratitude as being the essence of worship. It it seems, in some ways, gratitude and thankfulness seem elementary, but there's really nothing elementary about them at all. It's it's the essence of the kingdom. If, If you don't understand gratitude, if you don't understand thankfulness, you really don't understand the kingdom of heaven at all. And, uh, it's the reason that Mary would pour out $40,000 of oil on Jesus. You know, everybody gets to John chapter 12 and goes, wow, that's a really beautiful picture of worship. But the reason there's a John chapter 12 is because there's a John chapter 11 and it's Lazarus was dead in the tomb and she gave di- Jesus a dinner in his honor. And there's just something really practical about wanting to honor the Lord Jesus. And that's, that's what worship is. But um, this morning, I want to continue a little bit of what we talked about last week. I don't really want to talk about thankfulness and gratitude so much this morning. I really want to talk about something maybe we haven't talked about here before, really specifically ever. We've only maybe mentioned some of this. But I really want to talk about the power of music, and I want to talk about the power of singing. Um, some of the things that don't typically get cracked open in, in church, uh, but it's a really big deal. It's a really big deal. Um, before we get into that, I, I guess I do need to flash my, my, my pastor card here for a minute. Of course, I understand that worship is more than just music, and I understand that worship is more than a song. It's actually our whole life. We all we all get that, right? So I feel like I need to sort of flash that card first. You know, worship isn't just singing here and there, or playing a guitar and beating on a djembe. We only did that in the mid '90s, really, right? Enter the worship circle, then we got over that. But anyway, but worship is a whole life. And the essence of worship is, is a whole life that's turned toward God. I mean, that's just the, the simplest essence of what worship really is. It's, it's a whole life that's turned toward God. And not just turned toward God in the most generic sense, but in the specific sense of turned toward God and giving Him honor. That's, that's really what worship is. And because of that, you can worship the Lord while you're studying. And you can worship the Lord when you're at work. And you can worship the Lord while you're washing the dishes. And there's a familial, communal component of worshiping the Lord. You can worship the Lord in your family. When husbands treat their wives well, it's not just, it doesn't just help the family dynamic. It actually uh, gives the Lord honor. And there's a a place where husbands and wives can treat one another well and can raise up their children in an atmosphere where it isn't just doing the right thing, but it can be for God. And And it carries a worship component to it and actually really pleases the Lord. And it's uh, really, here's the deal. In the most generic and broad sense, worship is living in, in conscious communion with the Lord. Um, there are these abstract components in the scripture. You know, Jesus says like things like this. He says, if a couple of you will get together 
in my name, then I'll be there with you, right? And there's a couple hundred of us here this morning, and apparently he's here, right? But how many of you guys have gone to church before with a thousand people, and it felt like he was nowhere? You know, so there's like this, there's this, there are these theological principles of omnipresence, you know? And it's true, but then there's things that are even more true. It's the consciousness of His omnipresence. So it's really not about whether God is here. It's really about whether I'm aware of it or not. And there's something about worship that allows me to live in conscious awareness, live in the now, not in the past, not in the present, but live in the now where God is, conscious and aware of Him. And that's really what worship is. It's, it's the, to, live, to live aware of Him. Because here's the deal. He's aware of you all the time. He's aware of me. He's always aware of us. And that's what worship is. It's communion. It's, it's relational. And because it's this kind of a thing, you could, you could literally just be sitting in your kitchen washing dishes and you can meet with the Lord. You know, it's, it's a really big deal. In fact, sometimes um, some of my best moments with the Lord are, are I hate washing dishes, but I, I, I hate it. Um, but I do it. But I can be at the kitchen sink, you know, and I have the, got a, there's a big window. It's about a four or five foot window there at the kitchen sink. And it's really pretty and the kids are running around. I can just sit there and wash dishes. So I can meet with the Lord. I've actually, one of the, it's one of the things I've actually trained myself to do is specifically at dishwashing time to become aware of his presence so that we could commune. I mean, there's nothing worse than washing dishes, right? Might as well bring some good into it. Meet the Lord. <clears throat> None of that's really what I wanted to talk about, though. <laughs> that was all free. <clears throat> really what I want to get to is, um, this morning is I really wanted to get into the fact that, that there is a power and that there's wonder in worshiping God with music and song. There's a, there's a special kind of power on music and there's a special kind of power on song that really doesn't rest on anything else. And it's there because God put it there. It's, it's by His design. I, I don't know if you realize this, but this thing called worship at church, like with the rock kind of band or whatever, it's been a really big deal in the church for about the past 40 years. And the founder of the vineyard, John Wimber, was really instrumental in this being done because before... John Wimber, this just really didn't happen on Sunday morning. Some of you guys maybe grew up in a church where it was a piano over here and an organ over here, right? Yeah, but John Wimber sort of changed worship, and in doing so, he made it sort of like more culturally relevant, and the music expression changed. And because the music expression changed, in, in a large degree, the power on it changed, you know? And it wasn't just, uh, it wasn't just, it wasn't just culture catching up with, the church or the church catching up with culture, but it was actually people beginning to express uh, what was already in their hearts in a new way with new instruments and in new forms. And in doing so, there was a power that was released on it. And, and it wasn't just for the past 40 years, but how many of you guys realize that the church has always been a singing people? Like you can go back all the way through church history. There's not a time, any place in church history when God's people weren't singing people. And in fact, some of my favorite scriptures in the New Testament actually aren't scriptures at all. They are 
There's songs that were collected by the early church and sung by the early church. And then Paul inserts them into into his letters. There's at least three specific spots, probably more. But there's a portion of Romans chapter 8 that's a song. There's a portion of Colossians chapter 1, along about verse 15, when it talks about the magnificence of Jesus. That's actually a hymn of the early church. And then there's a portion of Philippians chapter 2. You all know that part where it says, you know, about Jesus, you know, don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to. In fact, you ought to look to Jesus who became a servant and emptied his life. You all know that portion of scripture? Yeah, that really wasn't something that was, that Paul just made up on the spot. It was actually something that was being sung in the local church. So imagine over 2000 years ago, the local church, they were singing those words about Jesus. See, God's people have always been a singing people. And then even, even before Jesus arrives on the scene, God's people were always singing. So you go all the way through the Old Testament you can find this, this collection of not just history and God's narrative, but you find a history of God's people being a singing people. It's something, it's, it's part of who we are. In fact, it goes all the way back to Miriam, especially. It's, Miriam kind of kicks it off in a brand new way. In Exodus chapter 15, she brings out her tambourine, and she starts to bang that thing, and she sings a brand new song. And she sings one of the most bizarre worship songs of all time. In fact, I just want to read you a piece of it. I wasn't planning on doing this. It's just so bizarre. I want you to realize this is a worship song, and I want you to imagine singing these lyrics at church sometime. I laugh every time I read them. It's so good. You realize at this point, the children of Israel have just come through the water, and all of their enemies are floating in the water dead. Okay? That's sort of the picture. And that's the reason that she's singing, okay? They're being utterly delivered. And this, this is what she sings. She and Moses sing this together. They sing, I'll sing to the Lord for he's highly exalted. The horse and rider he has hurled into the sea. That seems all right. The Lord is my strength and my song. That seems like something we could sing. He he has become my salvation. He is my God and I will sing praise to him. My father's God, I will exalt him. The Lord is a warrior. This is sort of new. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he has hurled into the sea. The best of Pharaoh's officers are drowned in the Red Sea. Deep waters have covered them. They sank to the depths like a stone. Hallelujah. It's hysterical. I mean, it actually, the the longer, I mean, we're only reading a, a portion of it. It gets more hysterical. Your right hand, O Lord, was majestic in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shattered the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you threw down those who opposed you. You unleashed your burning anger. It consumed them like stubble. By the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The surging waters stood firm like a wall. The deep waters congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy boasted, I will pursue them and overtake them. I will divide the spoils. I will gorge myself on them. I will draw my sword and my hand will destroy them. But you blew with your breath and the sea covered them and they sank like lead in the mighty waters. That's a different kind of song, isn't it? I feel the power on that. Do y'all feel the power on that? See, here's the deal. Sometimes we read that, you know, it's, because it's in a book and because it's in black and white and it's on a page, the tendency is to read that and to think it was, you know, a story. Well, it's not a story. It's a song. That was a song. So there's a certain kind of power that's just 
that's in music. Not only that, but it actually isn't just with us. It isn't just through church history. It isn't just with the early church. And it isn't with God's people before Jesus, all the way back to Moses and Miriam, and actually even before that. It isn't just like God's team. In fact, every, every single world religion and every single people group in the earth has a place for song in worship. You can't, you can't find it. What does that tell me? What it tells me is, is there's something that God has placed in humanity there's something about his own nature. There's something about the divine image that he has carved into people. And he has made us singers and he has made us musicians and he has put song in us in a, in a, in a deep way. And it isn't just about like redeemed good people. It's like anybody, everybody. It, what that tells me is this must be incredibly important to the Lord. It's by design. So if it's by design, then the question comes up, well, why is it by design, right? We'll get to that in just a minute. Um, First thing I want to do is I want to tell you a little bit about my own story with with music and with worship and with song. Um, I can remember from some of my earliest childhood memories, uh, I loved music. Um, I I just loved music. Here's the deal. Everybody loves music, right? I have asked a few people in my life, about music and then they try to tell me that they don't like music and then you go you're lying and you're weird (laughs) right you're a liar and you're a weirdo um but everybody likes music but i remember as a kid i just i love music i I, some of my earliest memory i don't really remember much about my childhood uh, but some of my earliest memories of childhood are wanting to be around musicians and wanting to have a guitar. Like the thing I wanted in life was a guitar, you know? Um, I can't remember not wanting a guitar. It, it goes that deep. And, um, and it, so I just grew up like that. And I grew up having a fascination with music. As soon as my mom and dad told me that there were certain musics that were approved and certain music that was unapproved, it didn't matter. I had the unapproved stuff. I remember, I remember having... <laughs> this is hysterical. I remember being like, I remember having contraband in my room and I would put it on and it would feel like I was going to hell, but I just liked it. It was crazy. <laughs> you know, it was so, it was so conflicting. I would put on Motley Crue, Dr. Feelgood. It would feel like I was going to hell, but it was like, how is this so good? You know, <clears throat> you guys are laughing, but you know what I'm talking about. But one of the pivotal moments in my life is I was at summer camp. And looking back on it, it was a super generic summer camp. Generic in the sense of it wasn't like the cool summer camp that all the kids go to now. It was like no hot water, uh, no air conditioning, lots of BO, a pool that had algae in it. You know, it was like it was pretty hectic summer camp. But at night, like I hadn't experienced this stuff before not in a personal sort of way, but at night we would have worship together. It was like sort of the ministry time and there would be worship and there was a band that was sort of like this. I hadn't experienced that before. The church that I grew up in, at least at that time, had a piano over here and an organ over here. But at summer camp during the nights, they would, they would have worship. And at first it interested me on the level of they're really great musicians and so it held my attention at just a purely musical level of, wow, that guy can really play lead guitar. Wow, that drummer is really amazing. But 
it happened every year. That only lasted about the first night, but by about Tuesday night, my heart began to be touched by what was happening in the room. My heart began to be touched, not just by their proficiency, but by the sound that was coming up from all around me. And there's all these, I realize it now, I didn't realize it then, but it was all of these subconscious, subterranean things that are being communicated when a group of people sing together. And one of the things that's being communicated is it's okay to go ahead and love God because everyone else in the room does. There's a permission that's given when everybody sings together to people who are otherwise meek and feel weak. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's one of the ways that strength comes into people. Some of us have really have a love for God and really have a Uh, have an affection for God, but we feel weird about expressing it. And it isn't until we come into a room full of people who are already expressing it that we feel like we have permission and we're not the only one. One One of the devil's primary tactics in life is to make people feel like they're the only one. One of the best ways he can get, uh, he can isolate you from actually being a worshiper is to convince you that you're the only one. And so when we come in to gather and worship, it changes. And there's something about worship camp. It, it totally changed my heart. Uh, it's probably the the key thing that that pulled me into being a uh, um, an outward lover of God. Uh, it wasn't preaching. Preaching never changed my heart and made me want to love God more. Even though I am preaching right now, it did not do it. Um, uh, Bible studies didn't do it. Uh, loved home groups uh, because I wanted to be around her. Right? I mean, we go to, like, as a young guys, we go to home groups because we want to find a girl, right? It's, it's not a bad plan. I highly, highly recommend it right now. <clears throat> but the thing that changed my heart was worship. And so it really, something happened to me at summer camp. And the unfortunate part is it would only happen once a year, you know? Then I grew up a little bit, and uh, one of the other pivotal experiences in my life is I was a young young guy. I can't really remember how old I was, but I was still in college. And early, probably maybe 20 years old, 19 or 20. And a group of people and, um, and, um, and me, we hopped in a van and we went down to the vineyard in Nashville, Tennessee. And this has been a long time ago. And we saw, we saw this guy named Kevin Prosh lead worship. And I had never seen this and that name probably doesn't mean anything much to most people in this room because kevin has sort of gone into hiding um for some good reasons and some bad reasons but needless to say this guy was off the charts i hadn't seen anything like him he's a complete mold breaker and what i mean by that is this so i go in and i've been in worship and i've been in worship that moved my heart you understand i've been in worship that made me feel like it was okay to express my heart to god but i go in the room there in nashville and there's this really strange, long-haired, hippie sort of a guy with a guitar and about a thousand little trinkets around him, like little percussion instruments from all over the world, uh, a drummer who looks like he just stepped out of sub-Saharan Africa, uh, a bass player, a piano player, an electric guitar player. And they began to play, and you could tell like what the beginning part of whatever they played was something that they had rehearsed. But, uh, but at some point, the whole thing just took a hard left turn. That's all I can describe. And you realize that everything they're playing is spontaneous. It's impro- improvisational. It's made up in the moment. Not only are the things they're playing spontaneous and improvisational, but the words that Kevin is singing, he's making it up in the moment. 
And he's and, and the crazy thing is I'm standing there and I'm feeling God. But the reason I'm feeling God is because Kevin is singing. I remember at one point right in the middle, he starts singing a song and it's about me. No, not everyone else in the room knows this, but I know this. He starts singing about me and he basically begins to prophesy and sing over me. He's not aware of that. The people are not aware of that. I'm aware of that. Apparently God's aware of that. It ruined my life. It's conflicting because you, because up to that point, and I'd even been playing music, up to that point, I, I was in a band in high school, and music was you practiced and you rehearsed. You had arrangements, you rehearsed them, you stick to the arrangement, and these guys were going completely off the page. They, they weren't like giving each other the big like guitar, like we're going to do this thing. None of, there was no communication. It was just like this flow of happening. And he was singing better than I've ever heard anyone sing. He was making up lyrics. And at one point during the night, the lyrics were about me. And it was about the father's affection for me. And it wasn't just abstract lyrics about, about any young man. It was specific to me. And I couldn't believe that he would have the boldness to sing these kinds of personal lyrics in a room. And I can't believe that he could do it without necessarily knowing what was going to come out of his mouth next. It ruined my life. I mean that in the most generous and good sort of way. Yeah, it, it touched something in my heart. It sometimes, it oftentimes happens around here. You know, when like Hannah just starts singing stuff and then the screen goes black. Yeah. I met this guy one time. He's been coming to the vineyard for about two months. He was like, why is it that the best part of worship has no lyrics? I had to tell him. It's because we don't know the lyrics. He's like, you don't know the lyrics. I'm like, no. He goes, how do you not know the lyrics? I'm like, because Hannah's making them up. Took me 15 minutes to convince him that she was really making them up. Those are just a couple of experiences. I could talk the rest of the morning about those sort of things. But the thing I want to draw out is this. It, it, was, it was encountering God in worship and encountering God through music that pulled me from being a spectator into being a participator. Not just in worship, but in life with God. Some of you guys know what I'm talking about. It, it, it pulled me out of being merely a spectator and pulled me into participation with the Lord. So I want to talk about just um, the power of music here for a few minutes. And I want to talk about six things. <laughs> Took me a minute. I'm like, five, six. <clears throat> the power of music. I should have organized these better. I just realized that now. <clears throat> we'll just go with the way I have them written. Um. Number one, music and songs are powerful because um, they are one of the main paths to wholeness. Music and songs are powerful because they're one of the main paths to wholeness. And I know this um, mostly by experience. And here's what I mean. Uh, I often, oftentimes say here at the venue that the most sane 45 minutes in our week is the 45 minutes that we give ourselves to gathered worship. And, and the longer that I'm a pastor and the longer that I 
do ministry, the more that I know this is absolutely true. And here's why. It's one of the main paths to wholeness. Out of a, out of a total 168 hours in a week, a lot of us in the room find that we are most centered, we are most our true selves, and we are most communing with God in that 45 minutes. And therefore, it's the most sane 45 minutes of our entire week. See, here's the deal. A lot of us in the room, even me as well, live a fractured life. And you know what I'm talking about. If it's not actually like the fracturing of our own soul and our own spirit, it's at least the fracturing of our schedule that will eventually drive you crazy. You get three kids playing soccer on three different fields and a couple of them wanting to wrestle and the art lessons and then Heather's going to go do this and I'm going to go here and there. I mean, just the, just the schedule of a week will fracture you and eventually wears on who you are. It, it especially wears on me. And there's a, there's a certain kind of unity and harmony that happens here out of a whole 168 hours in a week that is, that is actually therapy and it actually brings a person back together. That's one level. Then there's actually a much deeper level because you are actually not just in a random person, but you are a spirit, you're a soul and a body. And oftentimes we don't ever get to be fully united in who we are. We never get to fully unite our spirit, our soul and our body in any sort of activity. And there's something about worship, not just worship that we watch, but worship that we engage in. This is really important. When we engage in worship and we lift up our hands and we sing and, the, and our voice begins to actually vibrate through our body and our hands are up and our spirit is, is set upon God, there is something about that that is actually healing. It is restorative. It brings a person back to center and order. Not only that, but when we begin to do that, because sometimes, you know, the experts call it getting in the zone. Some of us get in the zone at our job or some of us get in the zone when we're riding or some of us get in the zone when we're on the, when we're on the basketball court and we just can't miss, right? But, there, but getting in the zone on the basketball court and getting in the zone at your job or getting in the zone while you're riding won't heal you. You can only get healed when you get in the zone and the center of your affections gets placed upon God. And when the center of your affections get placed upon God and when everything you are is aligned, body, soul, and spirit, things change. You'll get healed. You won't be crazy. It's true. It's true. I've actually, I've, been, I've actually been delivered by dark from dark spirits. I don't even know what they were in worship. Really funny. I went and was in a worship time. Went in, got really touched in worship. And after worship, went out into the lobby. And when I went out into the lobby, I met a, I met a friend that I hadn't seen in two years. And his immediate first words out of his mouth aren't, hey, Adam, it's good to see you. The first words out of his mouth are, what has changed about you? And I said, I I don't know. He goes, something's changed about you. Your eyes are so clear. I think it just happened in worship. Did you get delivered? Now, the funny thing that he didn't know and that I didn't tell anyone is while I'm in worship, I, I just began to turn my heart toward God. And in doing so, I felt something from my stomach go up and out. And I thought, that was very weird. I didn't, at the moment, I didn't know what it was. And it wasn't until I ran into him afterwards that I realized that I just got in worship and something, something just came off of me. Like darkness just got broke off of me. And it wasn't because I went in to get darkness broke off of me either. It's one of the great things about worship. It's one of the great things about music. And it's one of the great things about the kingdom of heaven is that there are side benefits and not side effects. Yeah, you get in. You see, here's the deal. We don't worship to get healed. We worship because God's good. 
But he can't help it. He's a healer. There's side benefits. So number one, songs are songs and music are one of the main paths to wholeness. Number two, this one's really interesting to me. Um, worship in, in music and worship with song is, is one of the main paths to a full life. And specifically, fullness of joy. See, here's the deal. It's human nature to sing. It's human nature to sing. Everybody in the room sings. You might not sing until you're absolutely alone, but you sing. Some of us sing in the shower. Anybody sing in the shower? I sing in the shower. Anybody sing in the car when no one else is with you? Yeah, right? What do you, you'll sing stupid stuff, won't you? Yeah, you'll, you will sing the dumbest stuff. Here's why you sing in the car when no one's around you. First reason you sing in the car is because you're a musical being created in the image of a musical God. But the other reason you'll sing in the car is because you sing when words just don't cut it anymore. Right? When there's a fullness, when there's a fullness and to specifically just say it or talk about it doesn't satisfy anymore, the only next thing is singing, right? And so you'll sing. Anybody remember... Anybody remember what it was like when you first fell in love? You sang stupid songs all the time. Right? What about, what about that day when you found out you got the job? Did you sing a little song? Did you sing a song, Matt? Yeah. And he danced. Yeah. Or the day that you, that you moved into your house. Or the day that you got a D and not an F? <laughs> Just setting the bar real low there. <laughs> or the day that you didn't get fired and everyone else did? Yeah. You'll sing on those kind of things. And the reason you'll sing is because words just don't cut it anymore. And in fact, I was talking to a, a good friend um, this week. I was actually talking to him on Friday. I was talking to... John Mark McMillan about this very thing. When words don't cut it anymore, we end up singing. And this is what John Mark said. And this was so good. He says, uh, he says, articulation is the consummation of experience. Articulation is the consummation of experience. There's a certain, there's a certain point at which joy has to be expressed in order to fully enjoy the joy that you have. Does that make sense? So expression and articulation is the consummation of joy. Why do we worship? Because it's just, because it actually increases our enjoyment of God. You worship because you enjoy God, and then to actually express your enjoyment of God actually increases your enjoyment of God. You know? Yeah. My, my son and I, we went last year, we went to a UK basketball game, and... Um, we were in Rupp Arena with 25,000 people or whatever. And the place came absolutely unglued when Josh Harrelson dunked the basketball in this guy's face. And it's great on multiple levels. It's great because your team is winning. It's also great to see like a six foot ten white guy who has a two-inch vertical just posterize this guy. It's like, it's like yes, there's hope for us still, you know? And the place came unglued. Why did it come unglued? But the play, people, like, like 
accountants started shouting. Yeah. What would make accountants shout? Yeah, see, it's that thing of worship is the reasonable spo- worship is a reasonable response to anything that's great. And and there's something about the act of giving voice to it that actually deepens our, the enjoyment of experience. It fulfills joy. It increases joy. <clears throat> so people sing when words will simply lo- no longer do. And not only that, and this is something I'm becoming to, to, to discover more and more, is that there is a kind of truth in melody alone. That melody carries its own truth. Because melody is a, is a, it's a vehicle... And melody allows a person to articulate the subtle and the not-so-subtle movements of the heart. See, melody is emotion given some sort of an expression. And sometimes, sometimes you, the only way to fully and adequately satisfy the truest truths is to sing it. Some of the truest things can't just be written down, and some of the truest things can't just be spoken. They have to be sung. It's back to that thing that we were talking about a few minutes ago. There's at least three hymns in the New Testament. Romans 8, Colossians 1, Philippians 2. And one of the really unique things is all three of those places are some of the most theologically rich portions of the New Testament. Two of the three are, are, are the center of of, of, of Christology, which is the study of Jesus. And it's the richest, and two of those passages are the richest and some of the most dense um, and complex and, and, and great passages on who the person of Jesus is in the New Testament. And they were actually songs. Why? Because some truth is just way too big to be spoken. It has to be sung. It actually, like at some point you get a view of Jesus that's so big and you can't just talk about it anymore. You have to sing it. Because it needs that truth that's in melody to carry it. Does that make sense? I hope it makes sense. Makes sense to me. It's the reason that there's always a song around Jesus and the Father and around the throne in heaven. There's very few uh, pictures of what heaven is actually like in all the scripture. Just, there's just a handful, just a, just a few. In every single one, there's worship around them and there's song and there's music and people singing. Yeah. Why? Because the revelation of God is so big and it's, it's coming out in such a dynamic and vast measure that you can't simply respond to it with words. God, you're awesome. Sounds pathetic, doesn't it? you want to, open up your Bibles. We want to make this thing legal. Turn it to, we're going to look at, really quickly, I want to turn to real, two very, incre- very strange passages, okay? So turn to 1 Samuel chapter 10, if you want to, and then put your finger there, and then turn to 2 Kings chapter 3. Two really bizarre passages.
let's start at first Samuel and then we'll work our way over to second Kings. Both of these passages have, they're just bizarre. That's all I can say. First Samuel chapter 10. Let me just tell you what's going on here. Saul has lost his father's donkeys and he's gone to see Samuel and Samuel told him, hey, you get up in the morning, I'm going to tell you something. And then this is part of what Samuel tells Saul, okay? So Saul's being anointed. He's actually been anointed, and this is what Samuel's telling him. He says, After that, you're going to go to Gibeah of God, where there's a Philistine outpost. And as you approach the town, you're going to meet a procession of prophets coming down from the high place with lyres, timbrels, pipes, and harps being played before them, and they will be prophesying. You need to just kind of underline all that. The Spirit of the Lord will come down powerfully upon you and you will prophesy with them and you will be changed into a different person. Really, really bizarre passage here. This is what Samuel tells him. He tells him, you're going to go out to where I'm, the direction I'm telling you and as you go out, you're going to meet a company of prophets. They're going to be coming down from the high place and they're going to have all this music happening in front of them. I hope you see that, okay? The, a procession of prophets Lyres, timbrels, pipes, and harps being played before them, and they will be prophesying. So do we have the picture? There are, there are musicians. The musicians are in the front, and the prophets are where? Behind them. So music is happening up front. People are prophesying behind them. And then Samuel the prophet says, you're going you're gonna to come into contact with these guys, and even though you don't know hardly anything about God, even though you are really scared and even though you run away all the time and even though you have really no idea what's going on at all, you're going to prophesy with them. Now, turn over to 2 Kings chapter 3. The beginning of 2 Kings is all about the life of Elisha the prophet. And here's what's happened, okay? I need to give you a little backstory on this as well. This is what's happened. Um, a guy in another country has broken contract with the king of Israel. The king of Israel goes to the king of Judah and says, will you go with me against these guys? And the king of Judah says, I will go with you anywhere you go. My men are your men. My horses are your horses. Where, how should we go and attack the guy who's broken contract with you? And he says, well, we should go through Edom. And so they take off through Edom. And while they go through Edom, they get the king of Edom to go with them. All right. So here's what we have. We have the king of Israel. We have the king of Judah. We have the king of Edom. They're all going against this king who's broken contract in terms of sheep and whatever else with the king of Israel. And they're out in the desert for a while. And once they are out in the desert for a while, they run out of water. And it becomes a little scary because they don't have any water for themselves. They don't have any water for their animals and the king of israel says to the king of judah oh my are we going to die what is going on has the lord brought us out here to kill us basically is what he's saying there's all this pressure and the king of judah says well we should get a prophet to tell us the word of the lord is there one and one of the servants says yeah there's elisha he used to pour water over elijah's hands let's go get him and so they go and get him and elijah is going to uh, elisha is going to prophesy to them but notice this this is really strange before he prophesies to him he says this Elisha says, As surely as the Lord Almighty lives, whom I serve, 
If I did not have respect for the presence of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, I would not pay any attention to you. But now bring me a harpist. And while the harpist was playing, the hand of the Lord came upon Elisha and he prophesied. So what's the point? Part of the point here is, and I hope you can catch this, there's all this pressure that's set up in this moment. All right, The guys think they're going to die. They're beginning to wonder if the hand of the Lord is against them. Not only that, but the king of Israel is a wicked man and his parents were incredibly wicked. And that's the reason that Elisha says, I have no respect for you. And in fact, if it wasn't for the king of Judah, I wouldn't even speak to you. But I will now. And before I do it, get me a harpist. The guy comes in, he begins to play the harp. And then the hand of the Lord comes upon Elisha and he prophesies. Everybody recognizing the two similar things about these stories. Yeah. Music comes first. Revelation comes second. What's the point? Well, the point is this. Music wakes away for revelation. If we want to say it in a real charismatic way, we'd say music changes the atmosphere. Right? And it's not fake atmosphere. It's actually like real atmosphere. Um, Music changes the atmosphere and it readies people for revelation. Uh, music changes the atmosphere and it actually changes what is possible in the moment. It's the reason that 99.9% of churches have worship first and preaching second. They have no idea why they do that, but they do it. And the reason they do that is because music changes the atmosphere and it prepares hearts and it actually helps pastors be anointed to bring a word. Now, 99.9% of pastors probably couldn't even articulate that exactly like that, but that's part of what's going on here. So music makes a way for revelation. That was number four. Number five. Music and songs are powerful because they're communal. When we get together on a Sunday morning and we have gathered worship, the one thing that we can all do together is we can all sing and we can all worship together. And there's a communal aspect. And because of that, it's powerful. It's, um, it unites. Um, the singer gets united with the song. The listener is united with the singer. The singers become united to one another. Our bodies actually begin to vibrate with, with, the, with the song that we're singing. It actually, encouragement will fall out of one person's mouth and onto another person. There's all, it, this little web gets tied together and we don't become just a, um, like a, uh, a ragtag fake group of people who are sort of held together by uh, make-believe principles, but we become a group of people who is held together by the Spirit and the Spirit actually is activated through song. It's communal. Something happens. Something happens. There's a little bit of what I was talking about earlier about that that when we sing together, uh, we give each other permission to encounter God. There's something about singing and music and worshiping together that breaks off the isolated spirit. Breaks off loneliness. And then number six, probably the one I like the best, but it's the hardest to explain. 
is that music is a mystery. Music is a mystery, and it it creates a space for the mystery of who God is to exist. It actually tells the prophetic story of who God is without even a word being spoken. Here's what I mean. For a chord to exist, there have to be three notes played together. And when three notes get played together, they make something brand new. They make a chord. Yet at the same time, none of those three notes is diminished in being an individual note. You know what I'm talking about? And so even, even, to, play, even to play a chord on a piano or to strum a chord on the piano or to strum a chord on a guitar is to give voice to the mystery of the Trinity. Three people who are held together, three people who are unique and diverse and one. There's, there's, a, there's a mystery component that is amplified in worship and it gives expression to who God is. Uh, so there's something about music that allows us to commune with to commune with God, but without uh, without the um, without the presumption of thinking that we have captured Him or that we have contained Him. Does that make sense? It's it's a it's a really big deal because one of the things that we need in life is we actually need more mystery. We've had far too much explained to us, and there's something about there's something about music that allows for a mysterious component, and it allows for a mysterious. Uh, communion with God. Yeah, when when Glenn when Glenn plays his guitar, you can hear it, but you can't see the notes. They're invisible, but they're present. Here's the cool thing. All of this is by God's design. All of this... All of this stuff is by God's design. If it's by His design, then we might ask the question again, why? Really simply, it's so that we could commune with Him. Uh, one, of, one of my favorite scriptures, uh, it used to embarrass me, but it doesn't embarrass me anymore. It's the, scripture, it's the scripture where it says that the Lord rejoices over us with singing. And there's this thing that happens, especially in worship, and it happens in music, where we begin to give our hearts to Him, and then in that moment, he begins to give his heart to us, right? Yeah, it's, it's amazing. Like, we'll sing to him, and then he'll begin to sing to us. We'll sing to him, and then he begins to sing to us. It's, it's the reason that sometimes worship here at the vineyard gets odd. It gets odd because God's beginning to sing his heart over us. It might come through Hannah's voice. It might come through Sam's voice. Or it might come through Josh's guitar. That makes it even odder. But it does. It happens. And God begins to, God begins to sing with joy over His people. So why, why, why this thing, music? Why is it, that something, why is it that something that we 
that we should, uh, should value and begin to actually, in some ways, leverage and incorporate in our lives that we might meet him. It's because he's designed it that way. It's one of the, it's one of the concrete and foundational ways that he's made for his creation to meet and be with him. Amen? Amen. Amen. If you're on the ministry team this morning, why don't you come on up?